welcome to the Shift HR Radio Download, where our mission is always to serve as a valuable resource for HR professionals and business leaders, and really anyone that's looking for information that's going to empower, for, empower you to make meaningful impacts in your workplace. My name is Karen Byington, and I'll be your host today. So in our last episode, we were talking with Carolyn Wall, who shifts HR's Director of Social Science Research to get a better understanding of what unconscious bias is and how our brains are developed to function this way. Um, and today we want to revisit the topic of unconscious bias and get a better understanding of how left unchecked these biases can lead to workplace harassment and discrimination. So joining me today to shed more light on how unconscious bias works, I have back Carolyn Wall. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. And to give us a perspective from the business and legal background, we have Shift HR's founder and employment law attorney, Catherine Nook Freeman. Hello, everyone. Excited to be here again, too. Well, welcome back. Um, and Carolyn, in the last episode, you gave us so much information um, and understanding what we really mean when we talk about unconscious bias. So would you mind just giving our listeners a brief reminder of the definition of unconscious bias and what we're really talking about? Sure. Uh, unconscious biases are preferences for or against a person or a group that are held at an unconscious level. So we're not aware of them and we don't consciously control them, but they shape our likes and our dislikes and our judgments about people's abilities, their potential, and their character. And we have these biases as a result of our socialization, uh, our personal experiences, and our exposure over time again and again to images and ideas that reinforce our biases. Right, and we were talking about and emphasizing the fact that all people really do have unconscious bias and that by raising awareness and recognizing the fact that we're wired this way um, and we do make assumptions that we can train ourselves to slow down and make better workplace decisions. Right, uh, our, automatic, excuse me, our automatic associations and our preferences and our assumptions are what enable us to see and understand our world more clearly and to navigate it more efficiently. And we rely on our brain's automatic processes to make tens of thousands of decisions each day. Uh, decisions but we don't even realize that we're making. Uh, for example, uh, researchers at Cornell found that we make an average of 227 decisions each day about food alone. Oh Could you God. imagine if we made each and every decision consciously? We mm -hmm. simply can't do that. Uh, and Karen, you're absolute, absolutely right that there are definite benefits to slowing down and thinking more deliberately. If we slow down and make use of our brain's conscious, analytical, and effortful mode of reasoning about the world, rather than relying only on our brain's quick and automatic processes, we are able to give ourselves the best chance of making fair, effective, and well-reasoned decisions. And, you know, I've been talking a lot lately about how you can do that in the business context, really slowing down, engaging our more deliberate minds to really try to help neutralize these biases, these unconscious biases that we all have, and, and help us to continue making better decisions. And, and to me, it's really fascinating when you think about how far we've come in terms of brain research. And I was reading recently that the, the founders of the Implicit Association Test, when they initially created the test back in the 90s, they spoke about, they, they, they didn't quite know what the value of the test would be in terms of whether we could retrain the way we, you know, view biases or think about biases. But now with this big surge of brain training, all these organizations that are out there helping children and adults alike really maintain their focus and 
engage the more thoughtful parts of their, their minds even more so, the thinking is that we can, in fact, do much more with these unconscious biases. We can't eliminate the unconscious biases, certainly, but we can help neutralize them by engaging other parts of our, our thinking into play. Yeah, and you know, on that thought of training has really come a long way. Um, I was reading an article recently about, um, and it was written by an attorney who happened to serve on the EEOC Select Task Force, Catherine, that we were talking about mm-hmm. um, in a previous episode of our podcast. And he had said that, um, you know, when you do unconscious bias training with your employees, you really want to avoid calling it like sensitivity training and all because employees are going to think it's fluff mm-hmm. and that there mm-hmm. really is just real sound business. Um, you know, reasoning for doing this training because it really does, you know, impact the um, the value your employees can bring in their decision making every day. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's such an essential it's such an essential topic to be talking about. And and whether you talk about it from sort of the altruistic perspective that you know it's just the right thing to do for us to recognize and understand our unconscious biases and neutralize them in our lives and in our businesses. But to your point, Karen, beyond being the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do for business. There is study after study after study which show that companies, for example, who have more diverse boards or companies who provide a more inclusive environment to their employees, they statistically outperform other companies that don't enforce those values. So there's absolute business justification, which should support companies in their efforts to dedicate more resources and time and energy to this idea of really uh, identifying unconscious bias and then neutralizing its effects throughout the workplace. Yeah, and you know, kind of to the point of what we're you know talking about today, it's also true though that there is an argument for companies wanting to focus on that type of training because we know that left unchecked, these unconscious biases can really lead to claims of harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Right, right, and that's one area where it's not really a defense under the law to say that I didn't mean to discriminate against that person. I I unintentionally discriminated against that person. You either do make a discriminatory decision or you don't, regardless of what your intent is and regardless of whether you're aware of it. And so as employers, as managers, as employees, we all need to be aware of this so that we can, again, try to neutralize these biases that sometimes we can't control so that we are not making decisions that are going to have a negative impact on our colleagues and on our workplace and the legal liabilities that go with that. Right. Or, you know, based on just assumptions and stereotypes. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Right. And see, the thing about assumptions and stereotypes is that even if they're not totally untrue, they're Mm -hmm. always incomplete. So when we base our actions and our decisions on assumptions and stereotypes, we don't even think about the fact that we are missing important information information that might have led us to make a different, better informed, smarter decision. You know, I just want to add to that because that's such a great point. Oftentimes when I go out and I I train corporations, I I train a lot of companies who are in financial services on Wall Street, and every once in a while a trader will say to me, well, if we're talking about statistically speaking, can't we say that statistically speaking, there are many more men in the trading role on Wall Street than women, and so maybe men are better suited for this position? 
And of course, we can't deny that statistically speaking, if you look at the numbers, maybe it's not high 90% of traders are comprised of men. The bottom line is, as Carolyn states, that's incomplete information because if I have a candidate in front of me who's applying for a position as a trader and she happens to be incredibly qualified from a quant perspective and she has amazing experience and amazing intelligence, I need to look at her and block out any prior experiences and socialization I may have about those statistics because it's not going to do me any benefit in, in evaluating her as an individual. Right. Yeah. Great example. So talking about statistics and specifics, I thought maybe we could get down to some specifics about how these biases lead to real significant rights um, and risks of workplace harassment and discrimination. And Catherine, when we discussed on our last podcast about the EEOC Tax Force on Harassment, you were telling our listeners um, that there's a surprising number of harassment charges filed by the EEOC and that they've continued to rise over the past 25 years, um, even though companies are providing training. Well, and actually, that's one of the reasons why we decided to dig deeper in our our standard preventing harassment discrimination training programs, and we include in every training module that we have at Shift a component of raising awareness about unconscious bias, because if you look at the statistics and the number of charges continue to rise, something's not working. We're not moving the needle on eliminating these issues. Um, the way we need to, and really, you know, we believe that because unconscious bias is often the root of the intentional and uh, discriminatory acts we see, that if, until you really raise awareness about it and raise strategies for neutralizing that unconscious bias, you're not going to accomplish what you want to accomplish in the workplace. Yeah. So, Carolyn, besides those more type of obvious bias that I think the EEOC was, you know, originally talking about, can you help us understand how? Um, these the more subtle ways that we see bias sneak into the workplace. Sure, uh, there are many types of bias that can, that there are many types of biases that can ar- arise in the workplace, and probably one of the most pervasive ones that we see is confirmation bias, and we all do it in all aspects of our lives. Uh, and confirmation bias is simply our tendency to favor our own hypothesis. So without realizing it, we selectively seek, interpret and weight information in ways that support our pre-existing beliefs. And most of the time, it's not that we're consciously deciding to ignore or bend or make up facts. It's that our brain's unconscious processes actually distort our reasoning. Our minds find a way to make the expected conclusion seem to be the correct conclusion. Uh, And in most cases, we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, We want to support our conclusions with evidence. But our search for evidence and our interpretation of what we find is biased by our, our beliefs, our prior beliefs, and our expectations. Uh, another common bias we see in the workplace is affinity bias. And this is what inclines us, uh, this is the bias that inclines us to feel more comfortable with and gravitate towards people who are like us. So simply put, we like people who are like us. Yeah. So Catherine, can you give our listeners some examples of how you've seen, um, you know, in your practice and with the clients you work with at Shift, how these biases um, play out in the workplace? Absolutely. And just to me, it's just so fascinating how they play out in life in general, because you think of the whole confirmation bias concept. And I think about like, the message my parents always used to say to me when I would be starting a first, you know, a class for the first time, you know, this was usually elementary school or secondary school. And they'd say, make sure you make a really great impression on your teacher. First impressions count. And the reason why they count is to Carolyn's point that your teacher is going to establish a confirmation bias. And if you start out of the gate strong and you're raising your hand and you're participating and giving great effort, they're, they're going to look to that. And every, th- every time they see you, they're going to confirm in their minds that vision of you. 
on the flip side, if you are misbehaving from the very beginning, they're going to look for that as well. And so that's just one area that, you know, is, is a clear example of how it plays out in life. But even that much harder for that child who was yes. misbehaving on day one because he was nervous right. to overcome that bias. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, in terms of the workplace, one of the common examples we see is affinity bias. And many times that comes out in the hiring process, for example. So you've got an employer who may have stated, you know, a stated mission to diversify their workplace, um, but yet they're still struggling to meet different hiring goals, and they end up hiring very similar types of employees to fit a very similar type of firm stereotype. Um, companies in Silicon Valley, for example, have have fought this for years, and they've started to become very public about talking about their diverse hiring goals and beyond that, what they're actually doing to try to accomplish those goals to really kind of create every possible sense of accountability for them so that they can they can get to where they, they need to be. And they don't want to continue to just hire the same sex, the same uh, you know, college representations, the same nationality, et cetera, um, which unfortunately sometimes happens to be the case when you're when you're dealing with issues of affinity bias. Yeah. Do you remember, Catherine, we were in the city just about a year or two ago and we were meeting with an advertising company and um, and we were meeting with the person who was tasked with charging their new diversity and inclusion task force and he said that they were very specific <laughs> in their um, their missions, that they knew they had a lack of diversity and yet they had these very stated goals. Mm-hmm. And the one manager said, it doesn't matter what we seem to do, we keep hiring like Danielle from Long Island for this. <laughs> <laughs> one department, and they said every person we apply like has the same look, the same. Yeah. And she's all like, yeah. pretty much, you can guarantee her name will be like Danielle. That's so, <laughs> so. true. Or like you know, Wall Street firms. There are many Wall Street firms where, for example, certain trading departments or sales and trading departments are known for having a significant amount of Division One lacrosse players, mm-hmm. and other trading departments are known for having a significant amount of you know Division One swimmers, or others have you know tons of people from Air Force or you know the Naval Academy, and it's really just that whole concept of affinity bias. And people wanting to hire people that they have that immediate connection to, which is, there's nothing wrong with the connection, but the key is if we want to have successful businesses, successful departments, we need to hire the best qualified people for the position. Um, And there is so much value that can be added by having those best qualified people and having those diverse perspectives, which contribute to that within the, the workplace. Yeah, it's, it's, amazingly easy for affinity bias to affect organizations in this way despite an organization's efforts to the contrary. So for example, a hiring manager might be certain that she conducted two interviews in exactly the same way with the exact same questions, but her affinity for a candidate might influence her evaluation of the candidate's performance, and it might also um, affect the candidate's actual performance itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you know, you alluded to, when we interact with someone we feel we have some affinity with, uh, maybe because we attended the same college or grew up in the same town or played the same sport in college, um, we react differently and more positively than we would with someone with whom we don't share that affinity. So for instance, if a candidate, a job candidate tells us that they're a little nervous, uh, we might smile at them more uh, or offer more words of, of encouragement Whereas if a person with whom we didn't share any particular affinity told us the same thing, we might not be quite as warm toward them. And a subtle difference like this can really turn out to make a big difference in how an interview unfolds. So in one case, 
uh, as Catherine mentioned, there's a connection and the, the candidate is put at ease and the conversation mm -hmm. just flows. And the interviewer can easily see uh, how this candidate would be just such a great fit. Um, whereas yeah. in another case, it might be a more business-like interaction and it might feel a little forced, uh, maybe even awkward. Mm -hmm. um, there's no connection and the fit maybe is a little less obvious. Uh, and it's situations like mm -hmm. these that can lead hiring managers and supervisors to, without knowing it, sort of start reproducing themselves within their organization. And, and clearly this presents a huge barrier to a, diver a diverse workforce. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, I often think of the situation in Silicon Valley with these gaming companies. And, you know, I see in my own home, you know, I have sons and daughters and my sons are really interested in video games and my daughters aren't. And it's really because, in my mind, my theory is that there aren't enough female game creators out there who are creating games that are actually of interest to girls because my daughter and none of her friends are interested in the games that come that come out and really when you look at it these gaming companies are missing out on 50% of the market share because they are only appealing to one sex and not the other and if they had a more diversified workplace they would be capturing that much more market share. Just really, again, honing in on the whole business need to make sure that diverse perspectives are really, you know, incorporated into the workplace. That's yeah, a great point. that's really interesting. So, and Carolyn mentioned also that um, another risk factor would be confirmation bias. Catherine, what mm -hmm. what kind of um, situations have you seen where that's played out? Yeah, you know, I see that again playing out in the interview setting too. So if you if you're interviewing a candidate and they're from an Ivy League school and your company has had great experience with candidates from that school before, then they might kind of give them that immediate stamp of approval and ac accelerate them through the hiring process. Or the same thing if they've come from um, a, a, a very highly successful competitive company, then you might accelerate them right through the process thinking, well, if they've been trained there, they must be good. If they were hired there, they must be good. And just that kind of confirmation bias that goes along with that. Yeah, those are great examples of a, a positive stereotype giving rise to a confirmation bias, which then gives a candidate or an employee an unfair edge. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, negative stereotypes can contribute to confirmation bias that will negatively affect employees. So, for example, if a, a supervisor holds a negative stereotype uh, that could apply to an employee, so for example, uh, that Latino men aren't hard workers, for example, um, any potential indicator of laziness in that employee would be noticed and emphasized and more well-remembered, while any behaviors suggesting that this employee might be a hard worker uh, might be overlooked or discounted or more quickly forgotten. And so this employee might be um, reprimanded and maybe even eventually fired because of perceived repeated instances of laziness, whereas a different employee who had the same performance issues but uh, wasn't expected to have those those problems might not be reprimanded uh, or fired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and they're not just hypothetical scenarios. They're real significant consequences for companies who don't really work to eliminate these type of problems, that these type of decisions that are being made um, on assumptions can really lead to real-world, you know, mm -hmm. significant um, risks for companies. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, we live in a litigious society right now. There's lit litigation everywhere. I mean, there are big companies are being sued, small companies are being sued. And if you, if you talk about the big company context, Microsoft um, is facing a class action lawsuit uh, on gender bias. And according to the complaint, 
Uh, it's alleged that Microsoft engaged in systemic and pervasive discrimination against female employees in the technical and engineering roles um, with respect to everything related to their performance evaluations, their pay, promotions. And, you know, according to that complaint, the gender bias that per pervades Microsoft's corporate culture has resulted in female technical professionals receiving less compensation than similar men. It's also resulted in the promotion of men over equally or more qualified women and less favorable uh, performance evaluations. So, you know, you can bet that, that Microsoft, I'm sure, is taking the position that that none of that is intentional, and if it even does in fact exist, um, you know, because I'm sure they're taking, they're going to try to take a, a strong stance here. But the bottom line is, again, even if it's not intentional, if these plaintiffs are able to show that there are differences and disparities in their pay and their promotions and their evaluations, and even if it's a result of unconscious bias. The discrimination either exists and the results are there or it doesn't. And if it does exist, it's a, going to be a huge problem for the organization. And they're going to want to take many, many different types of steps to, um, to do what they can to avoid these issues from, from impacting their workplace in the future. Yeah, and the important thing for some of our listeners, too, is it's not just these large Fortune 500 companies that are, that are at risk. Um, there are some smaller companies who are, you know, dealing with harassment and discrimination that are likely the result of, you know, unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. And the EEOC actually is pursuing many of these companies. I mean, there's a, you know, many recent decisions, but, you know, one just, for example, involved a smaller janitorial company um, not really on the radar of, uh, you know, of, of most people. And they ended up having to pay $3 million to 550 rejected black job applicants. So we're not even talking about employees who were on board with the company already. We're talking about employees who were trying to become hired by the company. And in this particular case, the EEOC found that the company had recruited through media, which is directed at Eastern Europeans and Hispanic applicant populations. And those individuals from those backgrounds and those races were often hired over African-American applicants. And as a result, the company was held liable because of this, because of this decision-making, the fact that they had targeted certain groups, protected categories over others, and made decisions, perhaps based on an unconscious bias that they believed Eastern Europeans were harder workers, were better cleaners, Hispanics the same. I mean, who knows what they were thinking? Maybe they had that that confirmation bias um, that Carolyn was talking about, that, that African Americans were lazier than these other types of um, uh, applicants. But the bottom line is they made a decision based on a protected category, and they targeted groups based on that. And regardless of whether they did it knowingly or unintentionally, uh, based on their unconscious biases, they were held liable. All right. So what kind of practical advice can you share with listeners who want to know, you know what they can do, what types of actions they can take to mitigate these kind of risks? Right. So the risks really need to be recognized. You know, we need to, as corporate citizens, as, as corporate leaders, we need to understand that unconscious bias exists in the workplace and that we need to think of ways to to address it and neutralize it. So there's so many things you can do, just to name a couple. Companies really need to start focusing on putting actual processes, structural processes in place to help overcome the bias. So whether it's specific protocols for hiring, whether it's specific protocols for the promotional process, these types of processes need to be evaluated 
and then put in place. So you know, one example, if you're talking about the hiring process is companies can think about, there's a very popular method out there right now called the top grading methodology. And it's a great methodology. And, and I don't even believe the creators created it for purposes of overcoming unconscious biases. They really created top grading because they want to help employers get the most qualified and best employees who fit the corporate values into the seats. But the way I see it as an employment lawyer and somebody who is a student of unconscious bias is that by having structured processes in place and by conducting interviews that are similar regardless of who the candidate is and what the connection is with the candidate is and asking questions and evolving, involving um, panels of interviewers, you're more likely to cut against that affinity bias that we talked about and cut against that confirmation bias that we talked about and instead really get to whether or not you are identifying the best possible candidate for the position. Yeah, and I think um, listeners, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing another podcast more specifically on these top grading methods, and Catherine's going to help us go through mm-hmm. um, and give you some real um, techniques that you can use. Um, exactly. And then and then finally, you know, we can't neglect training. I mean, training is absolutely essential because what we're talking about here is we've raised awareness about unconscious bias in, in this podcast, but what we have to realize is unless our employees go through some type of online training or instructor-led training, they may not even recognize the fact that they have unconscious biases. So we need training to help people recognize and become aware of their unconscious biases and then also to recognize recognize how those biases may negatively impact their peers and others in the workplace. And then finally, we need to teach and help people mentally remap the way they act and help them engage their more deliberative thought processes so that they can neutralize these biases that they're now aware of. So it's really essential to address it through training as well. Yeah, those are all great recommendations, Catherine. And what's also really important is for this messaging about bias and messaging about a workplace culture that promotes diversity, it's important for all this messaging to come from the top. Uh, So research shows that if employees don't believe it's important to the leadership, they're not as likely to participate in or be as engaged in programs uh, or be motivated to change their own behavior. That, that's exactly right. And it's uh, and I speak to companies all the time about diversity and inclusion and this concept of raising awareness within the organizations. And, and I can just tell when I meet with diversity and inclusion professionals who have a direct line to the CEO of the organization um, that they're going to be able to make a much bigger and better impact in their organizations because they've got that commitment from the very top levels of the organization, which, to Carolyn's point, is so essential. It makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Well, this has been so great. Thank you both for coming back and joining me today. Uh, listeners, you can always find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, um, and more information about Shift can be found at getshifthr.com. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you.